Section 22 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 13, Great Writers by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, Part 2. Nor was it with material obstacles only that the poet minister had to contend. In the exercise of the powers entrusted to him, he often encountered the fierce opposition of party interest and stubborn prejudice, and was sometimes driven to heroic and despotic measures in order to accomplish a desired result. As when he foiled the machinations of the Jena professors in his determination to save the university library, and when, in spite of the opposition of the leading burghers, he demolished the city wall. In 1786, Goethe was enabled to realize his cherished dream of a journey to Italy. There he spent a year and a half in the diligent study and admiring enjoyment of the treasures of art which made that country then, even more than now, the mark and desire of the civilized world. He came back an altered man. Intellectually and morally, he had made in that brief space, under new influences, a prodigious stride. His sudden advance while they had remained stationary separated him from his contemporaries. The old associations of the Weimar world, which still revolved its little round, the much enlightened traveler had outgrown. People thought him cold and reserved. It was only that the gay, impulsive youth had ripened into an earnest, sedate man. He found Germany jubilant over Schiller's Robbers and other writings representative of the Storm and Distress School, over which his maturity had left far behind, his own contributions to which he had come to hate. Schiller, who first made his acquaintance at this time, writes to Corner, I doubt that we shall ever become intimate. Much that, to me, is still of great interest he has already outlived. He is so far beyond me, not so much in years as in experience and culture, and we can never come together in one course. How greatly Schiller erred in the supposition that they never could become intimate, how close the intimacy which grew up between them, what harmony of sentiment, how friendly and mutually helpful their cooperation, is sufficiently notorious. But such was the first aspect which Goethe presented to strangers at this period of his life, he rather repelled than attracted, until nearer acquaintance learned rightly to interpret the man, and intellectual or moral affinity bridged the chasm which seemed to divide him from his kind. In part, too, the distance and reserve of which people complained was a necessary measure of self-defense against the disturbing importunities of social life. From Rome, says Friedrich von Müller, from the midst of the richest and grandest life dates the stern maxim of renunciation, which governed his subsequent being and doing, and which furnished his only guarantee of mental equipoise and peace. His literary works hitherto had been spasmodic and lawless effusions, the escapes of a gushing, turbulent youth. In Rome he had learned the sacred significance of art. The consciousness of his true vocation had been awakened in him, and to that, on the eve of his fortieth year, he thenceforth solemnly devoted the remainder of his life. He obtained release from the more onerous of his official engagements, retaining only such functions as accorded with his proper calling as a man of letters and of science. He renounced his daily intercourse with Frau von Steen, though still retaining and manifesting his unabated friendship for the woman to whom in former years he had devoted so large a portion of his time, and employed himself in giving forth those immortal words which have settled forever his place among the stars of first magnitude in the intellectual world. Noticeable and often noted was the charm and, when arrived to maturity, the grand effect of his personal presence. Physical beauty is not the stated accompaniment, nor even the presumable adjunct, of intellectual greatness. In Goethe, as perhaps in no other, the two were combined. 
a wondrous presence. On this point, the voices are one and the witnesses many. Goethe was with us, so write Heinze to one of his friends, a beautiful youth of twenty-five, full of genius and force from the crown of his head to the sole of his foot, a heart full of feeling, a spirit full of fire, who with eagle wings ruit immensus ore profundo. Jacobi writes, the more I think of it, the more impossible it seems to me to communicate to anyone who has not seen Goethe any conception of this extraordinary creature of God. Levator says, unspeakably sweet, an indescribable appearance, the most terrible and lovable of men. Hufeland, the chief medical celebrity of Germany, describes his appearance in early manhood. Never shall I forget the impression which he made as Orestes in Greek costume. You thought you beheld an Apollo. Never more was seen in any man such union of physical and spiritual perfection and beauty as at that time in Goethe. More remarkable still is the testimony of Weiland, who had reason to be offended, having been before their acquaintance the subject of Goethe's sharp satire. But immediately at their first meeting, sitting at the table by the side, he says, of this glorious youth, I was radically cured of all my vexation. Since this morning, he wrote to Jacobi, my soul is as full of Goethe as a dewdrop is of the morning sun. And to Zimmerman, he is in every respect the greatest, best, most splendid human being that ever God created. Goethe was then 26. Henry Crabb Robinson, who saw him at the age of 52, reports him one of the most oppressively handsome men he had ever seen, and speaks particularly as all who have described him speak, of his wonderfully brilliant eyes. Those eyes, we are told, had lost nothing of their luster, nor his head its natural covering, at the age of eighty. Among the heroic qualities notable in Goethe, I reckon his faithful and unflagging industry. Here was a man who took pains with himself, Lisch sich sauer werden, and made the most of himself. He speaks of wasting while at a student in Leipzig, the beautiful time. Certainly neither at Leipzig nor afterward at Strasbourg did he toil as his Wagner in Faust would have done but he was always learning. In the lecture room or out of it, with pens and books or gay companions, he was taking in, to give forth again in dramatic or philosophic form the world of his experience. A frolicsome youth may leave something to regret in the way of time misspent, but Goethe the man was no dawdler, no easy-going Epicurean. On the whole, he made the most of himself, and stands before the world a notable instance of a complete life. He would do the work which was given to him to do, he would not die till the second part of Faust was brought to its predetermined close. By sheer force of will, he lived till that work was done. Smitten at fourscore by the death of his son, and by deaths all around, he kept to his task. The idea of duty alone sustains me. The spirit is willing, the flesh must. When Faust was finished, the strain relaxed. My remaining days, he said, I may consider a free gift. It matters little what I do now or whether I do anything. And six months later, he died. A complete life, a life of strenuous toil, at home and abroad, in Italy and Sicily, at Ilmeno and Carlsbad, as in his study at Weimar, with eye or pen or speech, he was always at work. A man of rigid habits, no lolling or lounging. He showed me, says Eckerman, an elegant easy chair which he had bought today at an auction. But, said he, I shall never or rarely use it. All indolent habits are against my nature. You see in my chamber no sofa. I sit always in my old wooden chair, and never, till a few weeks ago, have permitted even a leaning place for my head to be added. If surrounded by tasteful furniture, my thoughts are arrested. I am placed in an agreeable but passive state. Unless we are accustomed to them from early youth, 
Splendid chambers and elegant furniture had better be left to people without thoughts. This in his 82nd year. A widely diffused prejudice regarding the personal character of Goethe refuses to credit him with any moral worth accordance with his bodily and mental gifts. It figures him a libertine, heartless, loveless, bad. I do not envy the mental condition of those who can rest in the belief that a really great poet can be a bad man. Be assured that the fruits of genius have never grown and will never grow in such a soil. Of all great poets, Byron might seem at first glance to constitute an exception to this. I venture to call it law of nature. Yet hear what Walter Scott, a sufficient judge, said of Byron. The errors of Byron arose neither from depravity of heart, for nature had not committed the anomaly of uniting to such extraordinary talents an imperfect moral sense, nor from feelings dead to the admiration of virtue. No man had ever a kinder heart for sympathy or a more open hand for the relief of distress. No mind was ever more formed for enthusiastic admiration of noble actions. The case of Goethe requires no appeal to general principles. It only requires that the charges against him be fairly investigated, that he be tried by documentary evidence and by the testimony of competent witnesses. The mistake is made of confusing breaches of conventional decorum with essential depravity. That Goethe was faulty in many ways may be freely conceded, but surely there is a wide difference between not being faultless and being definitely bad. To call a man bad is to say that the evil in him preponderates over the good. In the case of Goethe, the balance was greatly the other way. It has been said that he abused the confidence reposed in him by women, that he encouraged affection which he did not reciprocate for artistic purposes. The charge is utterly groundless, and in the case of Bettine, has been refuted by irrefragable proof. To say that he was wanting in love, heartless, cold, is ridiculously false. Yet the charge is constantly reiterated in the face of facts, reiterated with undoubting assurance and a certain complacency which seems to say, thank God we are not as this man was. There is a satisfaction which some people feel in spotting their man. Burns drank, Coleridge took opium, Byron was a rake, Goethe was cold. By these marks we know them. The poet found it necessary, as I have said, in later years, under social pressure and for the sake of the work which was given him to do, to fortify himself with a male of reserve. And this, indeed, contrasted strangely with his former abandon and with the customary gush of German sentimentality. It was common then for Germans who had known each other by report and were mutually attracted when they first met to fall on each other's necks and kiss and weep. Goethe, as a young man, had indulged such fervors, but in old age he had lost this effusiveness, or saw fit to restrain himself outwardly, while his kindly nature still glowed with its pristine fires. He wrote to Frau von Steen, I may truly say that my innermost condition does not correspond to my outward behavior. Hence the charge of coldness. Say that Mount Etna is cold. Do we not see the snow on its sides? But he was unpatriotic. He occupied himself with poetry and did not cry out while his country was in the death throes, so it seemed, of the struggle with France. But what should he have done? What could he have done? What would his single arm or declamation have availed? No man more than Goethe longed for the rehabilitation of Germany. In his own way, he wrought for that end. He could work effectually in no other. That enigmatical composition, the Marchen, according to the latest interpretation, indicates how, in Goethe's view, that end was to be accomplished. To one who considers the relation of ideas to events, it will not seem extravagant when I say that to Goethe, more than to any one individual, 
Germany is indebted for her emancipation, independence, and present political regeneration. In the summer of 1795, Goethe composed for Schiller's new magazine, Die Horen, a prose poem known in German literature as Das Marchen, The Tale, as if it were the only one, or the one which more than another deserves that appellation. Goethe gave this essay to the public as a riddle which would probably be unintelligible at the time, but which might perhaps find an interpreter after many days, when the hints contained in it should be verified. Since its first appearance, commentators have exercised their ingenuity upon it, perceiving it to be allegorical, but until recently without success. I followed Dr. Herman Bumgart's lead in the exposition which I now offer. The tale is a prophetic vision of the destinies of Germany, an allegorical foreshowing at the close of the 18th century of what Germany was yet to become, and has in great part already become. A position is predicted for her like that which she occupied from the time of Charles the Great to the time of Charles V, a period during which the Holy Roman Empire of Germany was the leading secular power in Western Europe. That time had gone by. Since the middle of the 16th century, Germany had declined, and at the date of this writing, 1795, had nearly reached her darkest day. Disintegrated, torn by conflicting interests, pecked by petty rival princes, despairing of her own future, it seemed impossible that she should ever again become a power among the nations. Goethe felt this, he felt it as profoundly as any German of his day, and he characteristically went into himself and studied the situation. The result was this wonderful composition, Das Marchen. He perceived that Germany must die to be born again. She did die and is born again. He had the sagacity to foresee the dissolution of the Holy Roman Empire, an event which took place 11 years later in 1806. The empire is figured by the composite statue of the fourth king in the subterranean temple, which crumbles to pieces when that temple, representing Germany's past, emerges and stands above ground by the river. The resurrection of the temple and its stand by the river is the denouement of the tale, and that signifies, allegorically, the rehabilitation of Germany. It is true, his writings contain no declamations against tyrants and no tirades in favor of liberty. He believed that oppression existed only through ignorance and blindness, and these he was all his life long seeking to remove. He believed that true liberty is attainable only through mental illumination, and that he was all his life long seeking to promote. He was no agitator, no revolutionist. He had no faith in violent measures. Human welfare, he judged, is not to be advanced in that way, is less dependent on forms of polity than on the life within. But if the test of patriotism is a service rendered to one's country, who more patriotic than him? Lucky for us and the world that he persisted to serve her in his own way and not as the agitators claimed that he should. It was clear to him then, and must be clear to us now, that he could not have been what they demanded, and at the same time have given to his country and the world what he did. As a courtier and favorite of fortune, it was inevitable that Goethe should have enemies. They have done what they could to blacken his name, and to this day the shadow they have cast upon it in part remains. But of this be sure, that no selfish, loveless egoist could have had and retained such friends. The man whom the saintly Fraulein von Klettenberg chose for her friend, whom clear-sighted, stern-judging Herder declared that he loved as he did his own soul. The man whose thoughtful kindness is celebrated by Herder's incomparable wife, whom Karl August and the Duchess Louise cherished as a brother, the man whom children everywhere welcomed as their ready playfellow and sure ally, 
of whom pious young stilling lamented that admirers of goethe's genius knew so little of the goodness of his heart can this have been a bad man heartless cold two the writer i have said that to goethe above all writers belongs the distinction of having excelled not experimented merely that others have also done but excelled in many distinct kinds to the lyrist he added the dramatist to the dramatist the novelist to the novelist the mystic seer and to all these the naturalist and scientific discoverer the history of literature exhibits no other instance in which a great poet has supplemented his proper orbit with so wide an epicycle in poetry as in science the ground of his activity was a passionate love of nature which dates from his boyhood at the age of fifteen recovering from a sickness caused by disappointment in a boyish affair of the heart he betook himself with his sketch-book to the woods in the farthest depth of the forest he says i sought out a solemn spot where ancient oaks and beeches formed a shady retreat a slight declivity of the soil made the merit of the ancient bowls more conspicuous this space was enclosed by a thicket of bushes between which peeped moss-covered rocks mighty and venerable affording a rapid fall to an affluent brook the sketches made of these objects at that early age could have had no artistic value although the methodical father was careful to mount and preserve them but what the pencil had it been the pencil of the greatest master could never glean from scenes like these what art could never grasp what words can never formulate the heart of the boy then imbibed assimilated resolved in his innermost being there awoke in him then those mysterious feelings those unutterable yearnings that pensive joy in the contemplation of nature which leavened all his subsequent life and the influence of which is so perceptible in his poetry especially in his lyrics the first literary venture by which goethe became widely known was goetz von berlinken a dramatic picture of the sixteenth century in which the principal figure is a predatory noble of that name a dramatic picture but not in any true sense a play it owed its popularity at the time partly to the truth of its portraitures partly to its choice of a native subject and the truly german feeling which pervades it it was a new departure in german literature and perplexed the critics as much as it delighted the general public it anticipated by a quarter of a century what is technically called the romantic school goetz van berlingen was soon followed by the sorrows of werther one of those books which on their first appearance have taken the world by storm and of which mrs stowe's uncle tom's cabin is the latest example it is a curious circumstance that a great poet should have won his first laurels by prose composition sir walter scott eclipsed the splendor of his poems by the popularity of the waverley novels goethe eclipsed the world-wide popularity of his werther by the splendor of his poems of one who was so great in many kinds it may seem difficult to decide in what department he most excelled without undertaking to measure and compare what is incommensurable i hold that goethe's genius is essentially lyrical whatever else may be claimed for him he is first of all and chiefly a singer deepest in his nature the most innate of all his faculties was the faculty of song of rhythmical utterance the first to manifest itself in childhood it was still active at the age of fourscore the lyrical portions of the second part of faust some of which were written a short time before his death are as spirited the versification as easy the rhythm as perfect as the songs of his youth as a lyrist he is unsurpassed i venture to say unequalled if we take into view the whole wide range of his performance in this kind from the ballads the best known of his smaller poems and those light fugitive pieces 
those bursts of song on which came to him without effort and with such a rush that in order to arrest and preserve them he seized as he tells us the first scrap of paper that came to hand and wrote upon it diagonally if it happened so to lie on his table lest through the delay of selecting and placing the inspiration should be checked and the poem evaporate from these to such stately compositions as the zuinignung or dedication of his poems the weltseel and the orphic sayings in short from poetry that writes itself that springs spontaneously in the mind to poetry that is written with elaborate art there is this distinction and it is one of the most marked in lyric verse compare english poetry by way of illustration the snatches of song in shakespeare's plays with shakespeare's sonnets compare burns with gray compare jean ingelow with browning end of section twenty two